What's it going to take? There's no eye candy to keep us focused on climate change. What is it going to take to really address the issue? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Situationalist artists of the early 20th century were perhaps the earliest to recognize the importance and cultural and political power of the spectacle. Today, with the intense firehose of news and information bombarding us 24-7, what, if anything, gets through the wall of noise? Not much. And as a result, items which are actually of perhaps most importance get drowned out. Our attention is distracted and often wholly captured by the latest shiny object. Pushed to the back or even nearly completely out of our attention are things we've seen before. Like politics, the news has become so much theater. Corporations which advertise on TV news shows know it's all about getting and keeping eyes on the screen. Some experts in the field have recognized what they call eye candy. So, as we are distracted by the latest blip, more complicated, less attractive in the moment, but far more meaningful and impactful stories get lost or ignored. One old story, of course, is climate change. After a day or two of coverage of the latest tornado, fire, flood, or other disaster, well, it disappears from you. And great damage is being done to us all, whether or not it's the lead story of the day or the hour. Our guest Steve Ellis and his compatriots are trying to address this dangerous imbalance. Could this be a wake-up call? The economic impact of climate change is shaking the foundation of our economy at its very core. So say two nonpartisan business groups, E2, Environmental Entrepreneurs, and the watchdog, Taxpayers for Common Sense. Our guest today is Steve Ellis of the latter group, Taxpayers for Common Sense. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you very much for having me, Bert. Happy to be here. Steve joined Taxpayers for Common Sense in 1999 and became president in 2020 after serving for well over a decade as vice president, overseeing programs, and serving as a leading media and legislative spokesperson. A persistent critic of the mounting budget deficit and federal fiscal policy, Steve has testified in Congress dozens of times, served as Democratic and Republican witness for the majority and minority, and appeared before 11 different committees. His comments have been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, among many other outlets, and appeared on major broadcast networks. His expertise ranges from earmarks to flood insurance and a lot of spending issues in between. Steve formerly served as an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard for six years, including tours of duty as a department head and deck watch officer aboard the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Sorel, managing the Coast Guard's inland waterway fleet and managing a small boat acquisition contract. And he received a B.S. in government from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, earned both the Coast Guard Commendation Medal and the Coast Guard Achievement Medal. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Steve Ellis. Please tell us about E2 and Taxpayers for Common Sense. What are the shared and individual goals, and how do they come to be? In what ways are they unique? Sure. Well, Bert, um, I'll talk about Taxpayers for Common Sense first, since that's uh, my organization. And uh, 
but I can also touch on E2 as well. And so we're a national nonpartisan budget watchdog. We've been around since 1995. Um, and um, I've been at TCS, as you mentioned, in, in my bio since 1999. Um, we work on a wide range of federal uh, budget and tax issues, uh, ranging from energy and natural resources to national security spending to infrastructure uh, investments to um, agriculture policy. Uh, and one thing that we've detected over the years in, um, that is a through line through all of those has been climate change impacts, you know, and so it's it, it's impacting national security. It's impacting the agriculture uh, industry. It obviously has energy and natural resources impacts and uh, it has huge taxpayer costs. And so that's one thing that we've um, uh, we were trying to drill down on and to find find out. Now on E2, um, they are, you know, as, as you mentioned, the E2 is environmental entrepreneurs, and really they're they're businesses that are in the, in, you know, have impacts and related um, uh, environmental issues, and so they separately, you know, did a report. Well, I should say TCS. We just released a report that is paying the price, taxpayers footing the bill for the increase in cost of climate change. That tried to catalog. Um, all of the taxpayer costs. So this is what's coming out of the U.S. Treasury to deal with mm. climate change. Mm. Um, separately, um, E2 last year, late last year, did a report um, that is called Billion Dollar Losses, Trillion Dollar Threats that really threaded together a lot of uh, the NOAA data, the National Oceanic National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, their data to look at some of the broader economic costs. So not just Ours was taxpayer costs. Theirs was really looking at the overall economic impacts of of climate change and climate disasters. And so um, that's where we kind of looked over, looked at each other and said, hey, there's a good synergy here. And they also talk a lot about some of the climate solutions, if you would, some of the investments that were going to come from these major legislative packages like the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh -huh. a couple of years ago and the Inflation Reduction Act um, of last year. And so that's um, kind of how they're coming at it. And we thought it would be helpful to and reinforcing to talk about both the taxpayer costs and the economic impacts of climate change. You know, it does. I, I wonder how much attention we taxpayers really pay to where our money goes. Uh, you know, so much of it goes to the uh, uh, weapons contractors, uh, which, you know, is questionable whether it makes us more secure or not. But uh, to get people to pay attention to that, boy, that is, that's a challenge. To get people to pay attention to anything but the current new shiny object, it's, it's a challenge. And obviously you guys at uh, Taxpayer for Common Sense recognize that. And this new report, important stuff, as you say, our report unequivocally demonstrates that we're paying, we're all paying a rapidly growing price from climate change. End of quote. I don't think people realize that. And what about the scope of research, what it reveals about taxpayer funding to pay for disasters over the past five years in comparison to other parts of the budget? Sure, Bert. Well, so one thing that, that, that you know, we thought is, and this gets to your shiny object or even you can even say denial, you know, about some of these issues is that Hey, look, this is this is the real data. This is what we're spending, whether you believe in climate change or not, um, or whether it's man-made or not, we're the, the costs are, are rising. And if you look at the average um, annual cost over the last five years, that it is more than we spend 
for the Department of Education or the Department of Energy or the Department of Homeland Security. And so just imagine that for, you know, a secretary of disaster. Um, and so we were trying to put things into context. And not only that, the other thing is, is we looked at the, over the last decade, so 10 years. And so that, that second five-year period of, that, of those 10 years, the total, the average annual cost went up 35%. Um, and so that's just it's it's a huge impact and growing impact on the Treasury, and it's going to continue to grow unless we do something about it. And boy, we I, I don't know how uh, much of a priority it is. And, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that a large percentage of American taxpayers get the degree to which climate change affects their tax burden. Your thoughts on that? <laughs> Sure, and, and no pun intended. I assume when you said degree, um, uh, yeah. speaking of degrees and climate change. Uh, so, but um, no, I think that that, that it is. It's it's it, it's a growing um, um, burden. And so, if you look at just in um, in 2017, which is the year that you had Harvey, Irma, and Maria, um, you know, we spent 120 billion dollars responding to those um, disasters and uh, an, an aggregate that year, um, and that's more than any single department in the budget other than the Pentagon uh, and by a long shot. And so it's something where, you know, we're, and we're going to continue to pay. And if you look at this, you know, even when you look at the Pentagon, I mean, they're devoting billions of dollars each year now um, to actually try to address the impacts of climate change. And if you think about, you know, the, the Pentagon, I mean, they're a huge, um, landholder. They've got $1.2 trillion worth of real estate around the globe. And if you think about it, a lot of that is exposed to climate change. You know, I mean, the Navy is by necessity is on the coast. And so you're having sea level rise impacting the Navy operations. You have dry dock facilities that are having sunny day flooding. You know, you have the issues of of uh, facilities and more farther flung areas that are that are that are having the impact of, of sea level rise as well. Tyndall Air Force Base um, was destroyed by Hurricane Michael in 2018. Every single building was damaged or destroyed on that in that facility. The Corps of Engineers estimated 99% of the facility there. It's not going to be back up to snuff until 2026. So there's areas where you, you, people haven't really thought about it, particularly mm -hmm. like with the Pentagon, that this is this is a real uh, issue that has to be addressed. Yeah, somehow we have to to understand it and, and just just to see it, to really get it. And, you know, I think we've been starting to. I mean, there was a local paper here in New Hampshire uh, that, that commented that uh, residents felt trapped in their homes after an intense rainstorm and that there's concern that that may be a harbinger of, of things to come. And, you know, the warming of the planet it did not directly create the wildfires up in Canada, the hurricanes, the floods, the droughts. But your organization says it's making extreme weather events more frequent, destructive, and costly. How do we know this? Is this can, I mean, there's not as many climate deniers as there used to be, but how do we know this for sure that it is exacerbating it? Well, so just if you look at the um, well, let me get to your point about people feeling trapped in their houses. You know, um, you know, we're in Washington, D.C., and we certainly felt that same way um, when the with the Canadian wildfires and the air quality. Uh, 
Right. Uh, and that, you know, essentially it was at one point it was saying that it was dangerous to go outside. I mean, I didn't even know that the air quality index went beyond red, that it went on to purple and, and maroon. Jeez. Um, and so, yeah. And now I have an air quality app on my iPhone, you know, I mean, it's something that just <sighs> is, is something that you just don't know about. But to your point though, about how do we know that this, these are growing? I mean, we have data to, to, to show that. So for instance, um, in the 1960s, there were, you know, basically what ha- there are such things called major disaster declaration. And what that is, is that a governor of an affected state um, will say to the to the president, hey, this is beyond our capability to respond to this natural disaster. Will you um, declare a major disaster? And then that allows the federal resources and help to come in. And so in the 1960s, there were 200 um, major disaster declaration. In the first decade of this century, there were 600. And so you can look at the, that, that time frame, and then you can just see that over, over time, we're, uh, like I said, about our costs increasing, you know, the, 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 the first five years of the last decade over the second mm-hmm. five years, you know, since 1980, we've spent $2.2 trillion on um, or the economic losses have been $2.2 trillion. Or you look at a year like 2005, you know, that's the year of Katrina, mm. but also Rita and Wilma. That's the year that we actually ran out of names for hurricanes and had to go to the Greek alphabet to start naming the, the final storms of that year. And so we are seeing this uptick in this growth and and costs and spending. And so it's clearly something (laughs) and you know at that point then you start paying attention to the scientists and recognizing okay this is going to have continuing impacts you know it's not as you said it's not we've had hurricanes you know one of the most destructive hurricanes in this country's history was in 1900 um in galveston texas you know we've certainly had wildfires you know certainly it's kind of the creation of the forest service was uh, dealing with wildfires and things like that and that's over 100 years ago but they're getting more intense and they're getting more um, uh, having greater impacts. So the numbers are clearly there. I mean, you just, you just I mean, the numbers are the numbers and, and that, uh, you know, the, the increase, it's, it's there and you can't, you know, deny that it's there. I mean, I suppose you could, but then again, it's, it happens to be reality. And, you know, there's the question of, all right, who pays for it? Everybody, you know, we have this old saying in New Hampshire, oh, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree. You know, somebody else. <laughs> and, you know, businesses, you know, they got they got to pick up a burden too. And running a business has many challenges that that have nothing to do with climate change. Yeah, there's a lot of issues. Tell us, please, about the escalating burden on American businesses as an effect of climate change. I don't think there's a lot of awareness of this aspect. Right. Well, that guy behind the tree, better watch out. It might be burned down by a wildfire. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, yeah, no, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, that you have, um, you know, just like you're saying, people, people shut in, you know, um, and feeling that way. Well, that has an economic impact just right there. I mean, you're not going to the store. You're not, you're not recreating. You're not doing things that are, that you would do otherwise. And that has an economic impact. But beyond that, you know, when you look at, um, uh, even if you have something like flood insurance or, or uh, you know, business interruption insurance, there are impacts from these disasters that are occurring. Um, and so it's, it's, it, there's, you know, very discrete impacts, you know, if you're 
business is flooded or if um, if your um, is, is your business is basically wiped out by hurricane winds, well, that obviously has a, as an economic impact, and it has a further economic impact in the fact that that's money that's being diverted to rebuilding from a disaster rather than actually doing other more productive things in the mm. economy. Um, and so it has that ripple effect. Uh, and then also, you know, you have the fact that, you know, if you have the increasing temperatures, well, that's going to increase the, the, not just for businesses, but for individuals like their, their home energy costs. Um, and so that's something else that's, that's going to be an impact. And then the other thing I would like to flag is, is that the impacts from a disaster disproportionately fall on low-income communities, communities of color, because in many cases, either A, they're, they're living in harm's way because that's the only place where they right. were allowed to live in the past, or B, that they are, you know, in a, in a, less desirable area just simply because that's what they can afford and that they don't have things to fall back on like savings to fall back on right. and so you have this disaster which may destroy your home may destroy your place of work um and then you have no real uh, wherewithal to actually recover and it's, as we know too often the the uh you know, the politics doesn't necessarily serve uh, that uh, uh, sector of our economy, lower income people, to the same degree that it serves the people who have a great deal of money and who can give large contributions to the candidates. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it is. <laughs> For those right, right. And, and that they don't necessarily have access to or um, um about, you know, to the various levers and tools that are out there for um, uh responding to disasters you know yes. or they there's and so there isn't that same knowledge and you know uh, again you know the people there are certain people who have structured these programs you know and so they they know how to access them access them better than others yeah for sure if you just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive today we're talking about uh, what can be done what's it going to take what is the reality of climate change and how is it affecting our economy and your taxes and my taxes as well. Our guest today is uh, Steve Ellis, who is president of Taxpayers for Common Sense. Boy, that's pretty rare, common sense. What can I tell you? You know that. You've heard that a lot, I'm sure. <laughs> In the New York Times, there was an interesting story, June 28th. It said, as climate change intensifies, severe rainstorms, the infrastructure protecting millions of Americans from flooding faces growing risks of failures, according to new calculations of expected uh, precipitation in every county and locality across the contiguous United States. At least 50% more rain per hour than the local pipes, channels, and culverts might be designed to drain. So pressure will quickly build on municipal budgets. Yikes. What, what, I mean, the municipalities, they're already, you know, a lot of them are strained anyway, but what will stimulate action and, you know, what can they do? Do they, and, and conservatives, Republicans have always, always sought to cut or at least limit funding for infrastructure maintenance and improvements. Tell us your thoughts about the state of awareness of the effects of climate change on consciousness about this essential aspect of economic stability. Well, you know, you certainly are seeing these major rain events and also where it's like um, the storm just sort of parks itself over yeah. a particular area. And so, for instance, several years ago, Baton Rouge had 
huge, huge flooding. And it was just simply from a, a, a very heavy rainstorm that um, had just basically, you know, drowned out the town essentially you know i mean it was like i can't remember exactly how many inches but it was a lot of inches in a very short period of time uh and you know that's a, that's a town that you know may have been ready for flooding from the mississippi um or even from um, a hurricane but this was just a rainstorm which is obviously inside the the, the levee so to speak you know mm-hmm. or you have the case of um harvey um in 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 houston that essentially it it just instead of most hurricanes, you know, they either move along the coast or they 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 cross, you know, they make landfall and then they move in and they dissipate. Harvey just parked itself over Houston, and um and you had huge um, rain implications. And yeah, these these are communities that you've got to drain that water. That water has to go sure. somewhere, and if you don't have the capacity to move that water, it's just going to to, to rise. And so you're going to have flooding in places where you're you're not expecting it. And the thing is, is that most homeowners don't have flood insurance. Um, And flood insurance is not something that's covered by your homeowner's insurance. It it just isn't. And so you have to purchase flood insurance separately. It's a federally backed program. And this is another example, I think, that Bert, you know, when you think about how things are changing and growing. Um, Up until 2005, the flood insurance program, which again is this federally backed, federally subsidized um, um, program that people can buy insurance, um, it had a borrowing limit of one and a half billion dollars. So basically, in years but since it was created in 1968, some years it would have a little bit of a surplus from the premiums it charged. Some years it have a little bit of a deficit, but they were able to cover that. Come 2005, the storms there, like I mentioned earlier, Katrina, Rita, and Wilma, and others. It was $18 billion in the hole. They had to increase the borrowing authority and get, get that far. Then you you say, okay, well, all right, that was 2005. I mean, that was Katrina. Um, but then you flash forward to 2011 and you have um, – or excuse me, 2012 and you have um, um, Superstorm Sandy and mm-hmm. there's another – seven billion dollars in borrowing and then other storms to where today that program has borrowed 36 billion dollars from the treasury um and it's never going to be paid back in fact congress forgave 16 uh, billion of that just outright so they didn't have to keep increasing the borrowing authority mm. so it, and it's it's not it hasn't been built into the federal budget, but uh, having to, to cover that, uh, boy, it's, it, I, I wonder if, I don't know if the, you know, the uh, infrastructure bill that Biden pushed and that, and that got passed, I know a lot of really good things in there. I don't know if it, it covers any of the uh, improvements to piping and, and uh, culverts and things like that that, that, uh, that can handle the water. What, what's the reality on that? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, I mean, I'd have to dig back into the legislation, but there certainly is various um, um, infrastructure investments. I mean, some of the stuff has nothing to do with climate. You know, there's uh, just announced a big uh, grant program for high-speed internet um, in rural areas, high-speed broadband in rural areas. You know, obviously that's separate, but but it's um, but certainly some of it will be capped. And, and this actually gets to another thing that we found in our report, Bert, and that is, we're budget watchdogs. We're used to going through uh-huh. um, the the materials and finding this stuff, and it's it's hard to track, you know. And uh-huh. that, particularly the Department of Defense, is it's it's you know seeing what their spending is on 
and you know some of maybe national security related, not wanting to release their vulnerabilities. But we need to get a better handle on how much we're actually spending or how much this is costing us, and that's part of the reason why we did this report. But we clearly call in there there should be greater transparency and accountability for this funding, and that gets true for the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act you were mentioning or the Inflation Reduction Act that we should be able to see where those dollars are going to make sure that they're going to the right things and they're being done right, and that 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 way, and we can figure out is it working. And if we have to change um, the approach, then we should do that. But we really need to be more, the government needs to be more transparent um, so, and accountable to taxpayers. More democracy. Whoa, what a concept. More, <laughs> more transparency. What, what, you know, and, and the right wing, the, the old conservatives, as well as the new right wing, uh, you know, they want to, everything for the military, nothing for anything else. That's, that's the way they have been so far. And, and yet a lot of the storms, I mean, I watch the news pretty much every night. I, you know, I must be some sort of masochist, but uh, <laughs> they, you know, the, a lot of the, Bad storms happen down there. I mean, and and that's you know the, the South, the states of the old Confederacy, they're solid red states. And when one looks at extreme weather such as tornadoes, they they seem to burden the, this region the hardest. And I wonder about the state of recognition of the economic challenges of climate change in this region. Are they just ignoring it so far? Are they pretending climate change isn't real as they have for so long? What What, what do you know about the old Confederacy? <laughs> um, well, you know, there's an old saying about there are no atheists in foxholes, and right. um, there's there's no no small government. Um, uh, people that, uh, uh, when it comes to a disaster affecting their state. And so certainly, um, there are, they, you know, there are calls for greater disaster assistance and, um, you know, some of the people who were, you know, we, we went through all the Superstorm Sandy data and everything and we flagged things that we thought were used good or not. We certainly didn't oppose the package, but there were certainly some lawmakers that that opposed it. And then just a few years later turned around and said, hey, this is different and we need money because of the storms in 2017. Um, And and so you know, part of it is what we, and this is a study that was done by a center for risk analysis at, at Wharton um, at the University of Pennsylvania, but uh-huh. they saw that after um, Hurricane Hugo, I think it was in the late 80s, that like about 25% of the response came from the the, the funding for responding came from um, the uh, uh, federal government. By the time um, Superstorm Sandy came around, it was more than 75% of the, the support. And so one of the things that we we're concerned about is, is that um, states and localities have to have to do their part, you know, and that we should be um, putting strings attached to some of this funding to making sure that um, every dollar that's spent or every dollar that's contributed means that that dollar, another dollar won't have to be spent in the future because we already know these places are vulnerable to disasters because they just got hit by one. And if it happened once, it can certainly happen again. And, you know, I mentioned Harvey a few times. Well, there was Ike just a few years before that same place. So they do see that. I can imagine a lot of, uh, you know, finger pointing and hand wringing, not to use too many cliches here, but uh, the, the, the municipal governments and state governments saying, hey, we don't have the money. It, it turned to the federal government. Uh, and, and, you know, most, as you say, you know, once they're in that foxhole, then they become not atheists anymore and that they believe the federal government can help them out there. But what can, I mean, 
Boy, it can be a hell of a burden on the uh, municipalities and the state uh, budgets. Yeah, and, and that's why, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is, is that, you know, every disaster dollar um, that flows should pre-spawned, um, term mm. coined, mm, uh, to future disasters. Uh, and that, you know, by doing this, then that makes us less likely to have to spend that that dollar again in, in, in the future. And so and then also we know that mitigation um, can reduce disaster costs. There was a study done by um, I think it's the Institute of Building Sciences that found that on for flooding, that every dollar spent on mitigation reduces future disaster costs by six dollars. Every dollar spent on mitigation for wildfire reduces future disaster costs by $3. And so essentially we can um, we need to make the, some of these un- upfront investments yes. to reduce risk so that we then don't have that uh, that end in cost. And, you know, you, you're saying that's used too many um, expressions, but it's a it's a it's a budgetary reflection of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound. Yes, of Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And for, again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about climate change and what can be done. What's the reality here? How much is it costing us? And like, oh, maybe that'll perk up some ears there. It's costing us, every one of us, money to pay for these things. And uh, you can't just keep uh, sweeping it under the rug. You know, the water rises the way the water rises. And, and a lot of people are getting hurt by it. And we talked a little bit about uh, the attitudes in the South. And I did note recently, uh, Texas Governor uh, Abbott signed a bill to not allow municipalities to permit a requirement for one t- one 10-minute water break for workers every four hours. Imagine working out in the hot, hot sun, 100 degrees and more, which has been happening and at least two people in recent days have died uh, in Texas from heat exhaustion. One would think businesses would want their employees to live, that that would be in their interest. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's political pressure that has to be applied to get, uh, to get anything done. That's just uh, the way it goes. Um, and as your report, I believe, points out uh, that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, much easier to say Noah predicts with a 70% certainty a usual to above average 2023 hurricane season. A high percentage of the population in America lives near the two coasts, including me. Uh, how have intense hurricanes, storm surge, and sea level rises affected our coastal states? Oh, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it varies by the coast. You know, it's, it, it, sea level rise is not a... Um, uh, uh, a linear or a thing that affects everything the same. So for instance, mm-hmm. the tidewater region of, of Virginia is actually having a greater um, level of sea level rise than say where you are. Uh-huh. It doesn't mean that it's not rising everywhere, but it is, it, it's not as um, uh, you would think it would be more linear, but it's not or equal, but it's not. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, the, but the thing is, is that it doesn't really, you know, in some ways um, as you've, we've got some of the warmest, uh, if not the warmest ocean temperatures, that we've had in, in, in recorded history. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's a recipe um, for hurricanes. hurricanes in the North. Yeah, exactly. In the North Atlantic. Yeah. And we saw just days after um, the uh, um, hurricane season started um, that we had Hurricane Arlene. 
and uh, there was a bee hurricane just a, just a week or two ago. Oh, and really, hurricane season is people think if you get through the summer, you're fine, but it's really it is it is a late summer fall yeah. um, impact. You know, I mean, uh, Superstorm Sandy was the end of September. Um, mm. Katrina was the end of was the end of August, and if you think about it, you still had Rita and Wilma, which were huge storms that year that were after Katrina. Um, and so um, it, it is something where you know, this, these are having these impacts and, and, and the science is is there now, you know, there are going to be years when there aren't as many hurricanes, you know, um, Uh and there aren't wildfires. And, but that's the reason why you have to look at the trends and say, okay, Uh you know, it's, 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 it's going just like, we can't say, oh, climate change caused Katrina or climate change caused Harvey or climate change caused the wildfires that, that, that the West coast had a few years ago, like the paradise fire. Um, but you can see that there, it is, it is growing and it is becoming more, they are becoming more intense and they're becoming, um, more dangerous and costly. And so say we, uh, go from, you know, this 2023 and you know, it's, possible that this particular hurricane season may be no worse than usual and you know there's going to be climate deniers saying see there's no climate change after all what do you, what do you say to that yeah I, again, I think you've already answered actually that yeah, yeah the trend is the trend Go ahead. right right you know you can't just look at one year and just say oh there it is or just like you can't look at one storm and say oh that's climate change it is it is um, a pattern that you're you're seeing and so then that is where you, you want to look at that. And it's, it is, you know, if you, you know, you're talking about how trusted the military is, I mean, the military said that climate change, one is a threat multiplier Two, it has wow. serious impacts, um, for, for their installations. You know, you mentioned about heat, well, heat impacts, you know, the, the, the military has facilities obviously in Texas or in Arizona and you have what one they, they can be exposed like Fort Huachuca to a wildfire, but then also heat has an impact on training. And um, ah, it's true. one of the things where you, you can't operate or even it can have an impact on, on flying conditions. Um, and so those are all things that are that are um, have an impact. And that actually gets to one other thing. And you're talking about the glass of water and that we tried to look at. It, and it's just not something that you can really calculate very well. But the, there's a whole healthcare risks as well and costs. That, that come from climate change, oh, um, you know, whether it's the air quality, like we mentioned about the wildfires. I mean, who in New York City ever thought that they were going to have to deal with a wildfire, but they actually had to deal with the result of of those Canadian wildfires and, and shut down the town. I mean, it was bizarrely eerie, those red scenes of, of, of how the, yeah. the, the, the city looked. And so those are all going to have um, impacts on um on communities and on, on, on vulnerable communities. And that obviously healthcare ends up being yes. the federal government is a huge provider of healthcare across this country, whether it's Medicare or even through the, if, um, the Obamacare or through Medicaid. And so that's also an impact. Yeah. That's those, those costs are certainly, they, they can help but go up. And as you say, you know, people in uh, lower income areas, uh, feel it the worst. I mean, you know, it's one thing uh, to be in a nice house when a hurricane comes through. You you worry. It's scary. But if you're living in a mobile home, oof, that that's a much, much higher risk. And, you know, it, the reality is it, it puts that sector of our population at, at, at greater risk. Um, and, again, if you, if you just tuned in, our guest today is Steve Ellis, who is president of Taxpayers for Common Sense. 
and I, it's a good name, and you know we have to deal with, we have to have common sense. Look at the numbers; the numbers are there. You cannot argue with the numbers. Go ahead; you're about to say something, Steve. So yeah, well, oh, Bert, this is this is several years ago. My predecessor, uh, Brian Alexander, um, when she was president, she was testifying um, before Congress, and uh, Representative Isa from California at that point said that that she had the best title in Washington: President of Taxpayers for Common Sense. Um, and so we're, we're, we're happy with that. But then, uh, you know, you're talking about housing and it is, I mean, certainly it is, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, trailer homes or manufactured housing, however you want right, to term it. Right. But it's also, I mean, uh, CoreLogic, um, which is a real estate data company, they estimated uh-huh. that 35, 35 million homes, a third of the nation's high housing stock are at high risk of natural disaster. Um, wow. and you know, and so that's not just, you know, you think about it, you know, people, most of those homes, I'm sure have a mortgage and most of those mortgages are probably federally backed, um, you know, through one of the, the, the government sponsors entities, you know, like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And we certainly saw, you know, in the, in the, um, in 2008, the whole housing crisis there is that that can have a huge, um, impact on the, um, uh, on the economy and on the federal government, um, the uh, the the four largest um, federal uh, single-family housing guarantee programs, they provide about six hundred fourteen billion dollars in primary guarantees um, this year. Whoa, that's quite uh, yeah, Whew. that's a lot of money, and uh, to to have that uh, you know at risk, that's that's uh, something people. You know, somehow we have to wake up and be aware of it. it. It's not hitting us in the head, you know, with like the latest shiny object, but it is real. And we've talked about the coast, the hurricanes. Then there's the Midwest, the flooding in the Midwest, America's heartland. What's what's going on there that is affecting our economy? Can this categorically categorically be determined to be the result of climate change. Talk about the Midwest and the heartland, if you would, please. Sure, sure. Well, you know, so you have basically two major um, climate-related threats. You have flooding, like you, you mentioned, and you have drought. Um, and um, they both can have um, huge impacts, you know. And I, um, when I first got to, 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 to D.C., I was in the Coast Guard. And actually, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I was managing the Coast Guard's um, inland waterway fleet, um, places where people don't really think the Coast Guard is, like St. Louis, Missouri, or mm. Peoria, Illinois, mm. um, uh, uh, Dubuque, Iowa. Um, right. But um, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Those are all navigable waterways. That, that There's Coast Guard uh, buoy tenders that are there. and um, But anyway... Um, that was in 1993 and that was the summer of the great Midwest flood. And so, you know, there were hundreds of levees that failed, um, flooding farmland, flooding, um, properties. And so certainly it was something that I'm not saying that was climate necessarily related, but I'm just saying that it was really opened my mind, my eyes to the flooding and the flooding impacts that Mm -hmm. I hadn't really seen, um, before. And so those areas are vulnerable to that, but then also, you know, the, Farmland is 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 really uh, vulnerable to um, uh, to drought, and so we have programs that are like crop insurance that uh, mm-hmm. is is federally backed that we provide, and so that's something that you know can have um, um, big costs uh, in in the long term, and so that's one area. Um, you know, they're looking at um, you know, so for instance, in 2022, taxpayers spent. 
um, $11.6 billion subsidizing premiums for flood insurance or for crop insurance plans. Um, and uh, what we're finding is, is that those costs are, are, are growing. Um, even you look at both the, um, the farm bill disaster program. So even though they have crop insurance, we have, we provide ad hoc disaster assistance as well. Um, and uh, these, um, when you couple the crop insurance and um, with the uh, these other disaster programs, on an annual basis, it was $8.4 billion it was costing taxpayers from um, over the last decade. Uh, and so that's another area that has an impact. And agriculture is kind of an interesting um, uh, industry in that they are both um, – they're a victim of climate change. They are a uh, contributor to climate change and they are part of the solution to climate change. Um, and so it is about figuring out ways to um, uh, do things better in the agriculture sector so that we have, you know, they're, they're not a, as much of a carbon emitter. Oh, interesting that they're both a contributor and a possible solution. And there's always the question of who pays, always the question of who pays. Uh, I've read that the the European Union, which I think tends to be more liberal, uh, they're balking at coming up with the funds needed to address climate change. So if they're not doing it, what's what's your, what do we know about that? And uh, wow, what does that say about our future? <laughs> well, you know, we're we're a a U.S. budget watchdog, so you know we keep our eye on the ball here. But it certainly it is a, um, a what we're trying to document is is that you know, and we did document is that we're all already paying, you know, and um, and so then it becomes how do we get better results from those disaster dollars? How do we make better investments that are going to reduce um, the impacts of climate change? And this is not like a way thing that we can just turn it off. You know, we've got to kind of come up with um, ways of incremental progress. And so certainly one of the reasons why we, we looked at DOD is, is that, like I said, they, they, have, a, they have huge impacts, um, but they can also be um, uh, a tool to kind of to reduce um, uh, climate change impacts. And so, for instance, we've, it's not in our report, but we've supported a rule that, that um, the, the federal acquisition regulations, which governs all the way government um, buys things, um, that they should have um, uh, data from the major, you know, so we're only talking about a few percent, but it's a huge amount of the spending, um, data from these companies about what are their climate exposures and what are their climate contributors. And then also, you know, basically steer contracts towards ones that are going to be less climate harming or even climate beneficial. And that has, I mean, the, the, as you can imagine, the government, the government's a huge buyer of goods and services and the pentagon is a major major part of that and they can really have an impact ah interesting so there is uh there there's power in uh, that purchasing power that that can uh, have an effect and not before we drift too far from it you know, the, the possibilities of of doing something what are some economic drivers or business opportunities that can alleviate the factors that uh, exacerbate the situation well, if my, um, you know, my friends from uh, E2 uh, were uh -huh. on the call, um, you know, they would be talking about um, 
you know, investments that are that are provided in those recent legislation, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and, uh, and, and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, um, where uh, for solar and wind energy, um, energy efficiency uh, mm-hmm. is something else that where there are some investments um, using uh, the fact that um, they would tell you that the uh, clean energy industries of led to employment of about 3.2 million workers um, mm-hmm. with higher median uh, hourly wages um, than the national median. Uh, and so these are all um, things that are that are beneficial in the economy and then obviously benefit us um, in um, climate change re- uh, reduction or reduce carbon emissions. That would be great. And, you know, I'm just sort of like, you know, in in a hope bucket, uh, people in who are working in West Virginia, for example, in the coal mines, they don't want the coal mines to close. It's jobs. If somehow there can be, uh, you know, conversion uh, capabilities there, if, say, the federal government, I don't know who else could do it, who'd have the cash to do it could help come up with with other jobs that, uh, you know, good paying jobs and, uh, to uh, defend against future disasters. There, there seems like there's some there's some possibilities there, some real opportunities in every challenge. There's opportunities. Uh, and, and there's that old saying about, you know, why can't government more, run more like a business? Well, it, any business to, to, to survive and to thrive knows they need to invest prudently. And when things that'll work, your thoughts about such such uh, challenges and opportunities? Well, one thing we've always said is is that um, you know that um, disasters are an opportunity, a tragic opportunity, but an opportunity uh-huh. nonetheless to remake yourself in a way that you're less vulnerable. Um, and so, you know, you can um, look at some of the, you know, what what do you do? Um, post-disaster that can actually reduce future costs, reduce future impacts, because in the end, we're still, we're talking about, you know, real people and, and, and people's lives. It's not just about the taxpayer dollars. And we understand that. And so similarly on, 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 on the jobs, I mean, at some point things, you know, the, the, the economy is shifting. And so yes. those are th- things that you want to make sure that people are employable and have opportunities because yes. I think the vast majority of people want to work and want to contribute. And yeah. so that's, that's, that, that we need to provide that uh, that type of opportunity for people. And it, it can be done. And, and speaking, I mean, we need energy. And, and you know, coal uh, contributes a lot to climate change. Uh, we have to we have to get away from that. We have to stop our addiction to coal. There's just no question about it, as painful as it may be. What energy source is perhaps best, well, you can't really say because there's so many, I suppose, contributes less to warming oceans and extreme weather events across America. I mean, you know, sustainable energy sources used to be disregarded as oh, just too too out there, too expansive, year, like 30 years ago. But what about the costs now? What about energy sources? Go ahead. Well, cer- certainly, um, you know, as I would say, again, my friends at E2 would talk about is that... Um, that, that, you know, as more adoption has and, and greater production, just kind of the normally that the law, you know, it's become it's solar panels have become cheaper just because uh, more being produced. There's better technology, better understanding. Um, and, uh, you know, there was an interesting um, statistic that uh, was recently uh, cited in a New York Times piece was that um, that for. You know, every it takes a hundred acres of 
corn growing, you know, growing corn to produce the same amount of energy in ethanol as it takes one acre of solar panels. No. Uh, mm. And yeah. And so it's something where you can we, we need to be um, approaching it and thinking, thinking better. And it is, you know, just like anything else, you want to have a diversified um, energy um, uh, sources sure, yeah. so that you're not exposed um, to any one particular shock. True. True. We've had plenty of shocks already. What what might be a good, prudent role for the private sector? I imagine there's all different opportunities. Yeah. Well, I think that some of it is is that they should, um, you know, whether you like the spending in the IIJA or the IRA, um, is to take advantage of those opportunities. And so there's certainly ways that they can, you know, become more energy efficient um, or that they can uh, make themselves um, less vulnerable, uh, you know, improve conditions. And so those are all things that, that, that businesses can do. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of money out there. And um, so, you know, I think that even, even um, politicians who oppose legislation are willing to take credit for federal spending that goes on in their, their districts. Uh, and, And so certainly there are, there are those opportunities out there and, and, from our perspective, we want us to see the money spent wisely and appropriately and that we learn from everything that we're, we're spending money on. Again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about climate change. What can be done? Our guest today, I'm very pleased to have President of Taxpayers for Common Sense, Steve Ellis, who also works with E2, Environmental Entrepreneurs. There are possibilities. Every challenge has opportunities. Um, what what adaptations, strategies, or policies? Um, what what can your group says that that climate change actually is forcing politicians to pass long overdue policies that will transform businesses, our lives, and a future like never before? Are politicians getting it? I mean, I've seen some states, uh, Massachusetts, for example. There's a lot of uh, solar. Uh, uh, roofs, you know, uh, photovoltaic roofs that I believe the state is paying for it. It's it's in their interest. Other states wouldn't dream of doing such a thing, uh, but it, it creative things like that. So, what what uh, polit- what what are politicians doing to pass long overdue policies uh, to make us feel a little uh, more optimistic here? <laughs> well, so for instance, um, you know, the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act had about. Um, $4 billion for the Bureau of Reclamation and for Bert, for your listeners who, you know, are not, not uh, familiar with the Bureau of Reclamation, mostly because they're a Western um, entity. I mean, it's a federal entity, but the 17 Western states are all reclamation states, which means these are a lot of water supply projects, whether it's for municipal, industrial, or agricultural. Um, they, they provided money so that they could, uh, for the Bureau to mitigate the impacts of drought in the West and, and per- predominantly in the Colorado River Basin, which has been way overtapped by, by uh, California, obviously, uh, Nevada, Arizona. And so they, um, they recently agreed to um, essentially uh, reduce some of the, the usage of the water um, from the Colorado River to, to, to give it a, a, a bit of a break and not to have it quite as overtapped. Um, and so they, they bought out some of the water contracts that are that are there. Um, and uh, that's something that you have to look at, you know, and, uh, you know, you have areas like the Imperial Valley and in Southern California that they're growing, um, growing alfalfa. Uh, hey, you know, and that's a hugely water intensive crop. Oh, wow. And, you know, not, not, 
worth a lot except for his feed, you know? And so it's sort of thinking about how do we use these resources in a better way and one that has a better, um, not just return for taxpayers, but a better value to overall to, to the, to the country. Also, you know, you have money that, that, you know, uh, like for instance, I went to the army Corps of engineers to try to mitigate flood and storm damage reduction, um, yeah. projects, uh, you know, and so those are also things, but we have to think smartly about them. And what I mean by that is, mm-hmm. is that, you know, it isn't just pumping sand on beaches to protect the homes there. We have to think about, are we going to do buyouts? Are we, are we going to, are we going to continue to try to hold it at bay? Um, and when it's, it, climate change bay when it when that's not even possible so it's also about looking at um uh dam safety um you know another flood damage reduction sort of activity yeah, and so and there's too. right 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 i mean there's like fifteen thousand high hazard dams in this country um and so there's um it's an area where also you want to make these these investments that that reduce um future impacts so much to do and and i, I can't help but think that Various development uh, schemes in the past have been, you know, very willy-nilly, and and uh, like for example in Louisiana, you know, a lot of the uh, the swampland whatever was wiped out, and and development was put in there. Well, perhaps that swampland did some good to to, to control, you know, the spread of water. And we only have a couple minutes left here, but I did want to ask. You know, I I will <clears throat> obviously I lean a little bit to the left. What a surprise! But there are people significantly to the left of me who just and and I have to before I ask the question H.L. Mencken had his great quote uh, there, for every complex problem there's a simple solution and it's wrong and <laughs> some I think that's so true some on the left would say oh it's just capitalism capitalism is exploiting everything doesn't care about you know d- protecting uh, the future or anything like that what would you say uh, to to people on the left who say oh forget it it's just capitalism not a damn thing you can do well you know there's you know we mentioned kind of this idea of the climate deniers and then there's the the client climate doomers you know yeah, and that right. uh, and and really you know you need to be in between and say that there are things that we can do to reduce these these overall impacts and it's not just capitalism i mean right. you know the 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 the, the economy you know, you have a federal government that's spending more than four trillion dollars a year, um, and so the, the Uncle Sam is is all over the place. And so it's it is about some of the investments and the spending. I mean, I mentioned the Colorado River Basin. I mean, that was all Colorado River Compact um, that was overseen by the U.S. government. Um, you know, and 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 so it's right. it's not just about. Um, uh, private sector biz, big, big, big business. It is also, there was some spending decisions that this country made years ago that are coming back to bite us. Yeah. Uh, and so it is about making sure that we make the right investments and use these, these trillions of dollars in, 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 in the right way, because we're, we're all paying. Yes, we are. And we're all not powerless. I know there's certain power groups in the U S that would like to love us to believe average citizens that we have no power. What can the average person who may be listening do? I assume there must be some website that has information. What can people do? Well, certainly I would invite your listeners, Bert, to come visit us at taxpayer.net, um, our website. You can also follow us on Twitter at taxpayers. Um, but also, 
you know, I, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I was a government major at the United, at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. You know, I think that there is a role for government and it can work. And I think there's a role for citizens to engage that government. And yes. that's where I really encourage your listeners to talk to their elected officials and to say that we we, we care about this. We know that we're spending, you know, more than on average, more than 60 billion dollars of taxpayer money a year responding to disasters we know that it's going up it's been it's 35 percent more in the last five years than it was in the first five years of the last decade and that we need to make sure that this money is invested and spent appropriately and responsibly so that we don't um, hemorrhage as much cash as we are doing we can do it we are not powerless that website again taxpayers Ta- taxpayer.net taxpayer singular.net that's nice. That's easy. That's good. It makes it a lot better. Hey, it has been very informative and uh, a fair amount of, of, of hope. And, uh, you know, we're not powerless. We're not a climate doomer. I had not heard that phrase before, but I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Thank you yep. so much. Steve Ellis of uh, Taxpayers for Common Sense. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Bert. It's been great talking to you, too. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.